We are continuing in our series through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10. It's just a few years after the events of chapter 9, as we saw last week. We see here Daniel has another vision. This vision is going to take up the remainder of the book. We're, we're almost to the end, believe it or not, of our study of Daniel. But before we get to this last vision... Uh, the content of it at least, this chapter is kind of like a prologue. It sets the stage for it. And it focuses a little bit on Daniel himself and how these things affected him. And so it's instructive for us as we consider how to respond to some of these grand visions here in this book. Daniel 10, we'll begin in verse 1. We'll read down through chapter 11, verse 1. Brethren, remember, this is God's Word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his face. His body was like beryl, his face was like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. The sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up, trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one like the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, my reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. 
And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except, uh, against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Amen. This is God's word. Let's ask for his blessing again. Bow with me. Prayer. Father, we are weary of all the opinions and all the spin and all the superficial fluff and lies of this world. We pray then that as we hear a thousand different voices in our head this week, Lord, that now, today, the day of days, that we would hear your voice. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, speak to each one, to each heart, to each soul that is gathered here. Help us, Lord, to receive your word, to prize it, to cherish it, to love it, to conform our lives to it. Use it for our good. Help us to hear as we ought to hear. Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. In many respects, the book of Daniel is truly a kind of David versus Goliath type of narrative. If you think all the way back to chapter 1 and you kind of make your way through all the chapters that we've seen so far, Daniel has again and again and again faced tremendous odds. The book opens with this tiny nation of Israel swallowed up by this ginormous Babylonian superpower. And they're hauled off into exile. Daniel and his friends then serve as, by far, the minority uh, in the royal courts of Babylon. They stand against the entire royal cabinet of wise men in Babylon. They alone refuse to to bow before the Babylonian gods. Um, Daniel alone refuses to um, uh, cease from praying to his god. They alone stare down the fiery furnace and, and the den of lions. Even when we come to the visions, we have these larger-than-life beasts that arise out of the earth, and they're, they're fearsome, and they're dominant, and the people of God are nothing in comparison. It's just chapter after chapter of poor little Daniel, weak little Israel, up against these great and powerful forces. It's never a fair fight. Well, it appears that here in Daniel 10, it really kind of all comes to a head with Daniel. Over and over again in this chapter, Daniel is described as weak and trembling, speechless, distressed, disheartened. It just all seems to be too much for him. You know, in his life, in one respect, we might say that, that Daniel was that David who stared down Goliath, but at this point, it appears that he sees another Goliath, and another Goliath, and another Goliath, and he's just overwhelmed with that reality. I'm sure you can probably identify here a little bit. Isn't life just too much at times? Don't we at times grow weary of living in this fallen world, 
weary of the never-ending fight against sin and Satan and the inward man, flesh. Don't at times we, we, we grow weary of opposition of other people that oppose us, circumstances that never seem to work out like we want them to. Not only this, just kind of like Daniel here, um, when you look out at the enemy, isn't it really easy to become disheartened? And we start thinking of things like, how in the world is our tiny little church ever going to make a difference in the world? How in the world can, can our simple worship, we, we sing hymns and we read Scripture and we pray, how in the world are our humble, simple, quiet lives, our ordinary wisdom, we're not full of brilliant insight or uh, perspectives that change the world, how in the world can we compete against this world? Materialism, riches, the allurements of this world, entertainment, Hollywood, pornography, sex. How in the world do we stand a chance? You know, at times we think, well, okay, the church shall never perish. We just sang that. The gates of hell will never prevail against us. God's going to save His people. God's going to, you know, to the end, we will endure. We sang that as well. But again, aren't we tempted at times just to kind of, I don't know, give up? Go back to bed? Just mourn over our troubles and hopefully they pass, disappear magically? Well, I feel this is a little bit of what Daniel is experiencing here. He's going through this. He's weary of the fight. He's weary of the challenges. He's weary of the enemy. And, and, and he kind of falls apart. And, and here, though, we see the Lord graciously step in to strengthen His beloved servant. To put it simply, this chapter shows us why and how we are not to grow weary in doing good. Of course, you know, we're not going to see here, as you might expect, we're not going to see here a bunch of empty platitudes about how life really isn't that bad, it's all going to work out okay. You know, there's a real spiritual warfare that is depicted here. Real conflict, real struggle, the battle is fierce, and there's no end in sight until Christ uh, returns. You know, also though, we won't find emphasis on our own strength and our own resolve and our own power and how, you know, we are strong and we got this. I'm enough. Because it's the strength of the Lord that's on display. We also don't see the Lord equipping Daniel with worldly fleshly weapons. Sword and might and strength and power and numbers. Rather, what we find is that Daniel is strengthened simply by the Word. He's strengthened by the Word. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Thus, the armor for this battle is spiritual armor. And yet, through it all, even though the battle is fierce and the enemy is fearsome, doesn't make the outcome any less certain. This chapter also serves to assure Daniel and to and us that the Lord reigns in heaven and on earth. He reigns and the outcome is certain, and yet we are still called to be active fighters in this spiritual warfare, even as we know we're going to face a host of Goliaths, sheep thrown in the midst of wolves. 
That then is the purpose of this chapter. To speak about human weakness. To strengthen Daniel with the power of God and to show the spiritual warfare that lies behind our earthly conflicts. And so, in that respect, that will kind of serve as our three-point outline this morning. These three things we will see. As we dive into the text, let's begin by thinking about human weakness. This passage speaks openly and honestly about human weakness. I want you to notice as the the chapter opens up in verse 1, we're told that this is the third year of King Cyrus. And then Daniel, oddly enough, is referred to as Belteshazzar, his Babylonian given name. Why in the world would we mention would he mention that he would, this was his name? Well, mentioning these two things, Cyrus and his Babylonian name, circle back to chapter one. Because in chapter one, both of those things appear, his name and Cyrus as well. And it's just another subtle way, the, the brilliant way of, of the author, Daniel, of serving, uh, uh, showing the bookends of this book. How the first chapter and the last chapter coincide. How this is the same Daniel that began back in chapter one. How we have the earthly conflict with kings and rulers and lions and, and fiery furnaces, but Then in the second half of the book, we have the spiritual conflict, the same type of conflict in the spiritual realm. Same realities, different perspective. But right away we see that life for Daniel at this point is not all a bed of roses. Even with the grace that he's been given, even with all his triumphs, even with the reign of Cyrus and the end of the exile. We read in verse 2 and 3 that Daniel was in a state of mourning. Uh, he fasted from the, what we might call the luxurious things, meat and wine. He probably only ate the bare necessities. He didn't anoint himself, which is speaking of kind of basic hygiene. Uh, for 21 days, he was in the state of, of mourning. His outward appearance uh, reflected his inward pain. Verse 4 also mentions that it was the 24th day of the first month. This would have been during Passover. So, perhaps intentionally so, Daniel is fasting during Passover, mourning the state of Israel at that time. But that kind of raises a question, why is Daniel sad? Why is he mourning? Why is he so distraught? Well, we're not told directly, but we we can piece together a few clues from this chapter. The third year of the reign of Cyrus... Uh, we know that it's been three years since Cyrus uh, decreed allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And yet, he's standing at the Tigris. He's still, Daniel is, still in Babylon. We don't know why he's still in Babylon. Maybe he was too involved in the government. Maybe he was too old. He's at least in his mid-80s at this point. Whatever reason, that would have been a little bit discouraging to him. Daniel was told by God directly that the exile would end. That the rebuild of the city would happen. We saw that in the last chapter. It would happen in his lifetime, but he doesn't get to see it. That could be particularly disheartening. Perhaps he's also mourning because so few of the Jews had actually taken advantage of the opportunity to return to Babylon. Excuse me, to Jerusalem. Maybe they had gotten used to Babylonian life. 
Right? This is too much strength and effort to rebuild the city. It just seemed too much. You know, it's like Israel in the wilderness longing to return to Egypt. So maybe Daniel's thinking, I can't return. I'm not strong enough. And yet, I see so many of my fellow Israelites spurning that opportunity. How bewildering that must be. Something he longed and prayed for for so long. And people are like, eh, I think I'll stay here. I'm good. Finally, though, I think another reason for his mourning, we read in the book of uh, Ezra that even when the Jews did return and the rebuild started, they immediately faced very powerful opposition. It was so intense that they ended up giving up almost as quickly as they began, and, and the work stopped for 15 years. So, so this is Daniel's perspective. He's, he's shocked that you know, the exile hasn't made things better. The end of the exile, I should say. He's shocked that, the, that them allowing to return to the Holy Land and the true worship of God wasn't making things better. It seemed like things were getting worse. And, and even more than this, in verse 1, he receives this vision about this great conflict. And so he's looking out and he's saying, great, more beasts, more opposition, more conflict, more Goliaths of the world coming out at Israel and the people of God, one after the other after the other. So he's done. He's done. He's broken. He's ready to give up. He's overwhelmed. And yet, on the other hand, not entirely. Because he's fasting, he's mourning, he's praying, he's crying out for help. Look at just another example in this book how Daniel was a man of prayer. That's the key to all of his wisdom and faithfulness. Again and again and again, this book says Daniel was a man of prayer. Daniel is weak. Daniel is weary, but, the, but this drove him to commune with God. Not to give God the silent treatment and just hope everything turned out okay. And once again, Daniel, excuse me, God answers Daniel's prayer. What's the answer to his prayer? Well, in verse 5 and 6, we see this divine figure appear. Some sort of angel. This glorious figure. He's described with this... With this Language, it's like Daniel's reaching like into the depths of human vocabulary to try to describe something that's just so glorious. His body was like beryl, a, a fine gemstone, and his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and arms and legs like burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like a multitude, a roar. On one hand, we might think, well, okay, who is this figure? You kind of want to know that. And there's been lots of speculation about this. Some, some argue that it was Gabriel. He appeared in the last chapter, after all. Some argue that it's the Lord Himself. Like an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, honestly, though, we, we just don't know. Some argue as well. That Ezekiel speaks about these living creatures around the throne that were brilliant. We don't exactly know who this is. I, I will say that uh, Isaiah's vision of the throne room and the language used of Jesus in, in Revelation chapter 1 seem to use some of the same description um, used of the Lord Jesus Himself. That seems compelling to me, but at the same time, we also read that this figure was sent by someone else. 
We're told that this figure was delayed uh, by his visit to Daniel because he was fighting with the prince of Persia. This is language that would typically describe an angel, not the Lord. Regardless, though, I'm inclined to think it was Christ because, as we'll see in the next point, of this healing touch that he gives Daniel. He just touches him and he heals him. Kind of picturing how Christ does that to us as well. But that's all beside the point. What I want you to see and think about is that this mystery of this figure is intentional to heighten the awesomeness of him. The Lord clouds himself, clothes himself in mystery. It's like the burning bush. That's part of his glory. That's part of his splendor. That's part of his just power. His awesomeness. Daniel is meant to feel confused and bewildered and overwhelmed in some respect by the mystery of this glorious figure. Part of the reason for that is to show Daniel the absolute sufficiency of the Lord to meet his needs and to fight his battles. He is meant to see that this glorious figure is on his side. It's not meant to crush him, but to encourage him. He is meant to see the radiant splendor of this being so that his weakness as a human, his helplessness, is made obvious. Brethren, that's no different for us as well. God clothes himself in mystery in part so that we will see and be overwhelmed with his power think of just how he does this in his decrees and his providence how frequently if you ask the lord why are you doing this this doesn't make sense this doesn't seem right this doesn't seem good i can't figure out what the lord is doing god wants us to see our weakness in comparison to him in the face of intimidating goliaths so that we won't trust in ourselves we will trust in the god who raises the dead you know if we could see him if we could comprehend him if we could fully understand him if we could grasp his plan and his ways um, his providence if we could survey his power and glory and like take it all in and every mystery would be kind of revealed to us we wouldn't trust him or lean on him like we ought to Mystery in God's being, mystery in God's providence, discouragement when you can't figure out His ways, disheartening circumstances that that make no sense, formidable, all-powerful enemies that oppose us are all part of God's loving plan for us. Because you see what happens here. When Daniel sees this figure, he's overcome. He's prostrate on the ground, he trembles, he turns his face away, he's emptied of all his strength. First, he's overcome by the circumstances. Why is this happening? How is this the plan of the Lord? Then he's overcome by the vision of the Lord and this visit from this divine figure. But it's precisely in this way that he's emptied of all his self-confidence and his own wisdom, his own strength, his own comfort. His own power. And that's how God's glorious power is put on display. As Jesus told Paul at his lowest point, 
My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's the same message that's behind this divine figure showing up in such an inexpressibly glorious way. But secondly, the human weakness sets the stage for the strength and encouragement of the power of God. The strength and encouragement of the power of God. Does God leave Daniel broken and trembling and face down in the ground? No, as the psalmist says, the Lord is the lifter of my head. Now, God certainly overwhelms David, excuse me, Daniel, with difficult circumstances. He certainly overwhelms Daniel with a sense of his own weakness. But the purpose of this is loving, to strengthen Daniel with God's glorious might rather than his own. Here I want you to notice that three times in this passage we're told that the angel touched Daniel. This is a healing touch. It's a, it's a loving touch. It's a touch of strength and encouragement and grace. And as I mentioned before, it's kind of a, the forerunner of how Jesus will come and heal with a touch. He is our great physician. But I want you to think about these three times that Daniel is touched by the divine figure. The first one is in verses 7-10. through 10. We read that, kind of like Paul and his companions on the Damascus road, uh, when this figure appears, Daniel is the only one who sees him. The rest flee in terror. Verse 8 says that Daniel's appearance was changed. We're told twice that he has no strength in him. And then when the figure spoke, he fell face down on the ground, kind of like in a trance, as though he was dead. But look at verse 10 and 11. Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this to me, I stood up trembling. How does the Lord strengthen and encourage weary saints? With the assurance of divine love. I saw this last week as well. Daniel, you are a man greatly loved. Why does the Lord tell Daniel again that he's loved? Didn't he already tell them that in the last chapter? He tells him because we are so prone to forget. We're so prone to walk by sight and not by faith. We're so prone to interpret the presence or absence of God's love based upon how life is going for us. Things are going well. Woo, God is good. He loves me. Things go wrong. Oh no, what have I done to make him angry? That's our default mode. That's what it means to walk by sight and not by faith. Here, the the restoration of Israel in Daniel's mind is not going according to plan. That's part of his discouragement. Him stuck in Babylon is not going according to his plan. And if God stoops to him to remind him, Daniel, you are greatly loved. See, it's the assurance 
of God's care in the midst of our distress. It's the way in which God renews our strength and and enables us to face what He's called us to face. But also note as well, just as we saw last week, God strengthens Daniel by giving him wisdom. In verse 11, Daniel, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. Stand confident in the wisdom and understanding of the Lord. Just like divine love lifts our head, wisdom and understanding of God's Word gives us that sturdy, stable foundation that enables us to stand. Then note one last thing about this first touch. Verse 12. Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. And I've come because of your words. Fear not. That's what our Lord Jesus often spoke as well. Fear not, don't you know, my little children, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. I know that you're in want, you're lack. Food and provision and care. Your Father knows that you need them. He will provide for you. But why don't we fear? Why is Daniel told not to fear? Because God has heard your prayers. Get up from the dust, Daniel. You are loved. Stand up and stand firm on the wisdom and understanding of the Lord. And fear not because God hears your prayers. See what I mean when I say that the strength and encouragement of the Lord comes through His Word? The Gospel of Jesus Christ assures us of His love. The wisdom and understanding of His Word give us the foundation on which to stand and order our life. And the peace and assurance is given through the, through the throne of grace when we cry out to Him knowing that He answers our prayers. That's what it means to be strengthened in the power of God's glorious might no matter what enemy that we may face. But this isn't all. Uh, There's a second touch in verse 15. The angel first recounts a spiritual battle. We'll consider that in a moment. But I want you to notice that when he spoke these words, what does Daniel respond into verse 15? I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Isn't that just a perfect picture of when we're overcome in life and we're just so weary and we want to give up? I got nothing left to say. Just a deep sigh, downward glance, shaking of the head, shrugging of the shoulders, a resigning to our fate. And Daniel's really human here. This is something we can all relate to in some respect. I turned my face toward the ground and I just I was just quiet. I'm done. But again, God stoops to Daniel's weakness. In verse 16, this divine figure comes and he touches Daniel's lips. Why does he touch Daniel's lips? So that Daniel would be free to speak. What does Daniel say then when he's free to speak? Verse 16. Oh my Lord, 
My, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me. I'm in pain. I retain no strength. I retain no strength. I have no breath in me. And brethren, again, that's the point. Another insight here about how God strengthens and encourages His people. He does so by opening up for us the throne of grace and inviting us to speak. Enabling us to cast all of our burdens and cares upon Him. That's why the book of Hebrews so, speaks so gloriously of Christ bursting open the heavenly uh, uh, throne room of God, the Holy of Holies. Sympathizes with our weaknesses so that we can come to Him. Through the, through the life and death of Jesus Christ on the cross, He has touched us and cleansed us, in a sense, giving us that freedom to speak. Just the fact that we have an invitation to speak and that God hears us is what strengthens us. Even if He, won't, if, even if he doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we think that He ought to. And think as well, when, when the angel touches Daniel, how inviting this is that, that Daniel just says, Lord, I'm weak. I've I got nothing else to say. I'm weak. Sometimes that's all we need to say. Sometimes that's all the Lord wants us to say. Just to be honest about the fact that we are utterly weak. That we got no strength. That we got no hope. But finally, in verses 18 and 19, there's a third touch. I want you to see again, what does this divine figure say to Daniel? O man, verse 19, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And then when Daniel says, as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. The Lord again reminds him that he's greatly loved. You know, if you're a parent, the Lord has given you children, you can't tell them enough that you love them. It's never too much. The nature of parenting, the reality of sin, will sometimes cause them to doubt that. So tell them that you love them. And tell them often. All the time. God treats us in a similar manner. You can't hear too many times that God loves you. Don't believe that lie when, when people say, well, if we emphasize God's love too much, we're going to downplay His holiness or His anger. And then people are just going to, oh my goodness, they're going to go out and commit sins. Brother, we never underemphasize His holiness or His justice or any of His attributes. But we can never talk too much about His love. This is the third time in two chapters that Daniel is told that he's greatly loved because it only takes a second. It only takes one discouraging circumstance. It only takes one display of weakness. It takes only one fault or sin in our hearts. One hint of doubt or unbelief. And we forget it. We go back to thinking, my relationship with God is based upon my behavior. And that's not the gospel. 
Your relationship with God, if you are in Christ, is based upon Christ's behavior for you. And God demonstrated His love for you in Christ by sending Him to die for your sin. So like John Owen famously said, there's no way, there's no, no, no way we can, uh, I'm paraphrasing here off the top of my head, we cannot, there's nothing that grieves the Father more than when we doubt His love for us. Just look at your life. You're wealthy. You've got a measure of health. Your mind is all there. Most of you this morning. You're hearing the Gospel. You have a copy of the Scriptures. God's given you the Holy Spirit. You have eternal life. When you die, your body will be raised. What do you want? There's evidence for His love for you. The circumstances go right in your life? That you get what you want, that boyfriend or girlfriend that you want, that life that you want, that career you want, those children that you want, that job that you want, that house that you want? Martin Luther famously said, riches are the most pitiful gifts that God gives His creatures. Because just look at all the wicked people in this world who are filthy rich. God gives Daniel the promise of His love. The gift of peace, strength, and power and courage in the Lord. And he assures Daniel, and you're not alone. Your prayers are heard through the word, through the spoken word. He lifts up and strengthens his servant and prepares him to face the days ahead. Well, third and finally, human weakness, the power of God's might, Finally, the spiritual warfare that's behind earthly conflicts. And again, this is part of Daniel's encouragement. Don't be mistaken. How does he encourage Daniel? By showing him the spiritual warfare that lies behind earthly conflicts. One of the ways that God strengthens us to stand firm in the face of opposition, and not to grow weary, is to remind us that there is a reality bigger than our small little world. The conflicts, many of them that we face on earth, are paralleled by conflicts in the spiritual realm. And that's really the large, largely the point of the next two chapters. Remember, from Daniel's point of view, Here he sees Israel and Babylon and Persia and Greece and the rebuilding of the temple. And he's discouraged. But God here pulls back the veil and says, look, this is only a small portion of reality. Because there's war going on in heaven over these things. You need to know this so that you are prepared to face the challenges here on earth. This is first mentioned in verses 12 through 14. Uh, There the divine figure says, uh, Do you know why you've been fasting for 21 days without an answer? 
Uh, well, because, verse 13, the prince of Persia withstood me for these 21 days. And he prevented me from coming to you until I got help. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who this prince of Persia refers to. Um, just like there's a lot of speculation about down in verse 20, there's a reference to the prince of Greece as well. The best that we can say is that these, this refers to angelic beings that resist God's purposes in the spiritual realm. Uh, an evil agent of Satan. The New Testament speaks about these as principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places. Satanic forces that oppose God's purpose and God's people. Of course, we can see here that they are very powerful. The battle was fierce. Uh, this power of Persia was strong enough to delay this divine figure for three weeks. Uh, brother, it just goes into the larger plan uh, or, or truth of Scripture that, again, behind the scenes of this earthly and physical realm, there's a spiritual world parallel to our world, and God and His hosts are waging war against those evil forces. Human history is inextricably linked to heavenly realities. So you might think, okay, well, what does Prince of Persia and Greece have to do with anything? Well, remember, Daniel was in mourning because the, the exile was not going according to plan. And not only that, but the vision that he receives, as we'll see next week, doesn't exactly paint a rosy picture about the future. And so God is saying to him, look, the rebuilding of the temple... It's not just a struggle in history. It's not just a struggle between nations here on earth. This is the fallout of a very intense spiritual war. Now, I do want to stop for a second just because of how many interpreters have taken this in crazy directions. Uh, but back then, God primarily dealt with nations because it was through a nation that the Messiah would come. So Persia and Greece being caught up in this conflict are an attempt of Satan to destroy Israel and thwart God's plan to bring the Messiah. Uh, but in the New Testament, that's no longer the case. God no longer prays, excuse me, deals with nations like America and Russia and China and Israel. Not in this geopolitical sense where there's a specific boundary, there's a specific people and a specific government. As one church father said, the role of these angels in the Old Testament is bound up with the Old Testament's preparatory mission, and thus it ceases with the coming of Christ. That's why we can't read passages like, if any nation humbles itself and calls on my name. God deals with peoples, not geopolitical entities. Those were a part of the Old Testament economy. Nevertheless, what God does want Satan, uh, Daniel to see is that Satan is at work. And this prepares him to deal with the conflict. But more than that, God wants Daniel to see his role in this conflict. His prayer plays a role in this conflict. His physical weakness reveals, exposes Israel's political weakness. And yet that does not determine who will win the battle. And ultimately though, verse 21, we see 
that all of this is the fallout of what has been inscribed in the book of truth. Daniel, the outcome isn't uncertain. Daniel, a delay in the answer to your prayers does not mean that evil is winning. All of history is under divine control and the determination of God. And brethren, that's the message for us today as well. We must not get caught up in the nations, in the wars, in the leaders, in the governments, in the cultures of this world. It is the church that Satan opposes. It is the church in the realm of truth and worship and the community of God's people where the the spiritual warfare in the heavenlies has taken place. We too also, though, must be aware that there are powerful evil forces at work in this world. And that every single day, there is a heavenly dimension to our struggles. Even your simple struggles with family members, with co-workers, with the sins of your own heart, Every single day, there is a spiritual war going on. But this is where the New Testament specifically turns and it tells us, Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. It tells us that. Why? So we'll understand the nature of the battle. Because right after that, what does the Apostle say? Put on the armor of God. Don't get caught up in human strength, in political power, in social work, in human wisdom, in human numbers. Our weapons are spiritual. And it's amazing, if you look at Ephesians 6, it really kind of echoes what we saw here today as well. Because Ephesians 6, what is the armor of God? We have the the belt of truth. God's Word and God's wisdom. We have the breastplate of righteousness. Christ is our righteousness and our strength. We have the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet. Like Daniel is told, peace be with you. We have the shield of faith, confidence in God's sovereignty and control. We have the helmet of salvation, assurance of God's love for us. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the wisdom and word of God. And we also are called in Ephesians 6, like Daniel here, to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That this is what brings us home for us today. Seeing His sufficiency and His provision, not being ignorant of the spiritual battle that we are waging, Knowing that we are playing an important role simply through our intercessory prayers. That is how we endure without growing weary. Brethren, there's such great freedom in recognizing and admitting and embracing human weakness. There's such great freedom in it. And and even being without strength and without words and in a sense without hope when we look out and we, and we see the Goliaths and the Goliaths and we see the battles and the opposition, there's great freedom in this because this is what opens us up. To be honest about our utter bankruptcy and weakness so that we are strengthened by the power of His glorious might knowing that Christ's power is made perfect. 
precisely in our weakness. As we heard already today from Colossians 1, Christ on the cross has won that victory. The battle is over even if the skirmishes are still still remaining for this time. Christ has put those principalities and powers to open shame, triumphing over them at the cross. And He is in the process right now of cleaning up until they are all fully and finally put under His feet. That is our confidence. That is why the gates of hell shall never prevail against the building of His church. And so while we wait for our divine warrior to appear and to return, what do we do? constant in prayer. We cling to His Word. We believe His promises. We rest in His power. That's how we faithfully face all the great battles of today and tomorrow that God has prepared for us as a demonstration of His glory. May God give us wisdom and insight and the grace to receive these words. Let's pray.